Hey, I want to uh, just acknowledge some of the kids that are in the room. This is your time to head upstairs or to your uh, classes. So some of your leaders are in the back in this corner over here, grades three and up. If you're registered and you want to go, uh, you can uh, meet your leaders in the back. Let's thank Steve one more time. Thank you so much, Steve. Um, um, I don't know if this is a, a appropriate to say about what you do, but it is so pleasant and it is so pleasing. Um, and so if you want more of that sort of experience, uh, tonight is a full-blown concert here, and Steve will uh, have plenty of time and space to really uh, develop his thoughts and his music and his, um, his inspired uh, words. So if you'd like to be part of that tonight at 7, tickets are still available. Best way to do that is just go to our website, and there's a clear link, and you can grab yourself tickets. I think there's a way to actually access it at the door as well, uh, but we'd love to have you back for just a really uh, warm, pleasant evening here uh, as we enter into the second week of Advent. Just a couple other reminders. Uh, first of all, if you're, if you're participating in the We Care Bags, that ministry uh, down in our inner city, our, our folks that are down there right now ministering to some of our friends, if you'd like to be part of that, you have one more week to get those bags in. Next weekend is the weekend to bring those back so that they can be distributed. And then we're two weeks away from Christmas. Christmas Eve is two weeks from tonight, 14 days. Can you believe it? We are here. And so we are getting ready for our Christmas Eve services, four opportunities on the 23rd and the 24th. And would you please help spread the word about this a little bit? This is the easiest invitation in the calendar to invite someone to come with you, friends, neighbors, colleagues, coworkers, whatever it happens to be. We've made it really easy for you. Again, on our website, if you go to that Christmas in the Park page, right at the bottom there's a button that says share. And if you click that, you'll have options to email an invitation, to post to your social media feeds, and just spread the word about these great services that are coming up. Uh, in just a couple of weeks. Now, I always look forward to these services in Advent. I love this season. This is my 17th time that I've moved through Advent with you as my church family. And so that means this is the 17th time I've tried to come up with a new and fresh idea to retell the story that we have been retelling forever. It's, it's one of the great pastor dilemmas, how to teach on something, how to reflect on something that most of us have thought about and reflected on dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And so it was this past summer when my teammate and friend Rita shared an idea with me in a book uh, form. She gave me this little book called uh, The Art of Advent, A Painting a Day from Advent to Epiphany by a woman named Jane Williams. And she said, hey, this is kind of a cool book here. You should take a look at it. And so I did. I read it and I loved it. If you're looking for a Christmas gift idea for a hard-to-buy person, especially if they're just a little bit artistic or maybe like Steve has an appreciation for church history or history in general, great, great book. And, and even for those people who are the cynics who pick up a book and they kind of sarcastically say, what, no pictures? It's all about the pictures. <laughs> There's tons of pictures in these descriptions. There's 37 different art pieces, all from the biblical record, and a bunch of them are devoted to uh, focusing on the events that we're celebrating during Advent. And uh, much of the scriptures from Luke uh, 1 and 2 and Matthew 1 and 2 are brought to life through art. Now, when Rita gave me the book, 
I kind of went through the entire book and I started to pay attention to whatever the art pieces were that kind of connected with me. And so I settled on four that we're going to share with you this month, one for each weekend of Advent. And so last weekend, Brody got us started by uh, focusing a bit on that port you see on the far left over there. That's The Light of the World by William Holman Hunt. And what you see in that portrait, I recognize that some of you are a long ways off from that, but uh, Jesus is standing outside of a closed door. He's knocking, he's waiting, and the door has no keyhole. There's no openings where light can filter in. It's completely capable of withstanding the light completely unless it's opened. And it's supposed to draw us into Advent reflection. There's three light sources around Jesus. There's the light behind him, the dawn light, and the lantern he carries. There's the light around his head. His own inner brightness from the others are taking their meaning from him. So it's a portrait intended for us to consider how open we are to God, which means it's an invitation. It's an invitation to open ourselves up. It's an invitation to open up our hearts to the presence of Jesus. And so last weekend, Brody did kind of a dramatic reveal. On Saturday night, it didn't go so well. He thought there would be a reaction when he pulled it down, and everybody just went, yeah, okay. And so then on Sunday morning, if you were here a week ago, Brody, you know, kind of asked for it. He milked it a little bit. He was pandering when he said, please, you know, give me the reaction I'm looking for. So I'm going to reveal this one, and you decide if you want to give me the reaction that I'm kind of looking for as well. So this is this week's portrait. Let's check it out together. Uh... That, that didn't feel very believable to me. That felt quite sarcastic. So the painting uh, from last weekend is well known. This one's not as well known. Uh, this is Christ in the House of His Parents by John Everett Millais, and it was painted in 1849. Now there's all kinds of things to notice, so we've blown up a few of the, the significant parts of the painting here. So uh, young Jesus and uh, his mother Mary are in the center, and the setting is the workshop of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. So this is a place of family industry and security. It's also a place where minor injuries can happen, and that's the case in what's depicted here. Jesus has cut himself. Presumably on the nail, his grandmother is about to pull out of the door that Joseph is working on. And by the way, it's worth just pausing for a second there and considering that neither she nor his mother will be able to do the same for the nails that Jesus will face later in his life. The other young boy in the picture is cousin John. He's carrying a bowl of water to wash the wound. In the upper left-hand corner are sheep. They're peering in through the doorway. More on that in a second. And Joseph is leaning in. He's the one in red. He's not fussing, but he does have a concerned look on his face. Now, this painting was controversial. Some people didn't really like it, mostly because of the ordinariness that's depicted. It's a messy shop. It's a small family business. It's real people, uh, working class clothes. It's full of depictions of Jesus' future ministry, but it's a sharp departure from classic medieval paintings. It's an ordinary space where Joseph is providing for his family as best he can for as long as he can. 
Now, we really don't know that much about Jesus' childhood, but given the way that Jesus speaks about the fatherhood of God, we kind of surmise that Jesus' experience of his earthly father was positive. So I want to talk about Joseph for a few more minutes. We don't know a lot about him. There's no mention of him at the foot of the cross or among the apostles after the ascension. Tradition suggests that Joseph was probably quite a bit older than Mary, so there's a good chance that he's deceased when Jesus enters his public ministry and is eventually crucified. Joseph is part of most of your nativity sets, but let's admit it, he's kind of an afterthought, almost a little bit of a, a prop in the background. He's not really the focal point. But for a few more minutes, think about him. This is his shop. This is how he provides for and protects his family. This is where he sacrifices to help prepare the way for God's salvation in Jesus. As an Advent piece, this portrait encourages us to discern our spot in the story, to find our place in the story. Now, some people will identify with the sheep. The sheep are thought to be those who follow Jesus, those who are trying to understand, like Steve was describing, this great mystery and respond to this mystery and the mission. But for a few more moments, place your gaze and your response on Joseph and his willingness to be an assistant, to assist in the salvation of the world in Jesus. He doesn't need to be center stage. Rather, he leans in with love from the side of the picture. Joseph is one of the most overlooked characters in the Christmas story. Uh, there's an Old Testament Joseph that you might know about. He gets talked about a lot. It's the latter portion of the book of Genesis. And that's the story of Joseph and the colorful coat and his brothers and his dad and all. That's a great story. Musicals are written about it. But Joseph, the father of Jesus, really doesn't get that much attention. And we're singing Christmas songs right now, right? Our, our best love Christmas carols, of course, they focus on Jesus. They should. But Mary gets a lot of focus in our Christmas carols, too. Think about some of the all-timers. Maybe Silent Night. I don't know for, for you, but that's got to be top five. Uh, you all know the lyrics. Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child. Holy infant, so tender and mild. Not a word about Joseph. <laughs> nothing. There's nothing there. Um, remember the song, What Child Is This? What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Well, guess what? Joseph has a lap too. Uh, and I'm guessing that at times he ends up on dad's lap as well. But there's no song about Jesus on Joseph's lap. There's a contemporary song. I think it's about 10 years old. And churches have been singing it and performing it all over the place. It's called Mary, Did You Know? You know that one? Yeah, we've been doing this one. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would someday walk on water? Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know? That over and over and over again. Well, we don't really fully know what Mary knew. The scriptures tell us that she had a revelation from God. But nobody's ever produced a song saying, you know, Joseph, did you know? He also had a revelation from God. I'll show you that in a second. But all I'm doing here is seeking to establish how Joseph was cooperating with the birth of Jesus and God and what he's seeking to do. And his part is protection and training and getting his boy ready to grow up. It's worth thinking about Joseph. 
It's worth thinking about the fact that he is a bit of a minor character in the story, yet he's got a front row seat. He's playing a critical role in all that took place. So place yourself in his sandals, so to speak, as we consider the Christmas story from the perspective of Joseph, the adoptive father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is from Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. This is how the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will have a son, and you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. Now, don't hear anything critical uh, when I say that Joseph sort of gets second billing to Mary in the Christmas story. Based on what we just read, despite not being part of the incarnation, and what I mean by that, that mysterious transaction between God the Father, the Spirit, the Son, and Mary, yes, he's merely the adoptive father, yet he's critical in the story. He helps raise Jesus. He's the one through whom... You know, Mary makes that difficult. He makes that difficult choice to walk with Mary through this very suspect and strange pregnancy. It's all very suspicious to him at first. And a close examination of the text reveals how Joseph went through sort of a, a roller coaster of, of emotions and reactions to these events. Uh, they're a little bit like the stages of grief. Maybe you've heard of the stages of grief. Um, similar, but different, but similar. Here's what I mean. From the way Matthew tells the story, it looks as though it's easy to surmise that uh, Joseph's story begins with excitement because the first thing we learn about Joseph is that he and Mary are engaged. That's how we're introduced to them. They were engaged to be married, and, and engagements are happy times, right? They generally are, are very happy. I asked Corrine to marry me around Labor Day in 1987, and we were married on New Year's Eve about four months later. We got married in California, and in the United States, some of you may know this, um, you can get a bit of a tax break by filing jointly, and uh, you file based on when you were married, and so Corrine wanted a tax break, and so, you know, she wanted to hurry up and get married in the year we got engaged, you know, because she's all about the money. Anyway, but after we got engaged, we did what couples do. You call everybody, right? Uh, this is pre-social media, so we couldn't post on Instagram and, and Twitter and Facebook and stuff like people do now. But we called everybody. We celebrated. We had a little party because we announced that we were engaged. What Mary and Joseph are experiencing is similar but different. 
I read from the New Living Translation, and it uses the word engaged. Other translations will use the word betrothed. It's important to understand that uh, while most cultures don't practice betrothal anymore, in ancient Jewish cultures, when children were young, it was very common, even like 12, 13, or 14 years old, parents would come together as uh, parents, one family and another family, and they would decide to marry their kids to each other. By the way, I recognize that some of you are going to recoil from this idea of a young child being sort of pledged to another by their parents. This may offend some of your sensibilities, and I get that, especially when you consider that sometimes these young girls were given away to older men. That may feel gross, and I just it's the culture of the day. Parents believed that certain matters of the heart were not really uh, to be left to their kids, and so they said, we're going to take responsibility for that. Uh, most of us wouldn't do that, but it was common for two families to agree that their kids would be married, and so there were two stages to the marriage. First was the betrothal period, which was usually around 12 months. There would be a ceremony in a synagogue, and the families would come together, and they would enter into a contract. And from that point on, these uh, two people were considered husband and wife, but they did not have intimate physical relations, but they were merely promised to each other. The only way for one to break the agreement with the other would be for the parties, one party, to issue a formal statement of divorce. But if all was well, and after that betrothal period was over, the families would then hold the marriage ceremony, often in the same synagogue, and it would be formalized then in front of the community, in front of their family and their friends. It was a big celebration. So Joseph's initial emotion, it's easy to assume in the text is one of excitement, elation. Young couples looking forward to their marriage uh, is usually something to be celebrating. They're looking forward to the wedding with anticipation and certainly to the honeymoon for sure. There's nothing in the story to indicate that Joseph and Mary were any different than any of us would be. But if Joseph's first emotion was excitement, as I see it, his excitement was very quickly replaced by Shock, maybe not quickly, but the next big movement was shock because you know the story. Matthew says before the marriage took place, she became pregnant. That was a problem. That was jarring news, the kind of news which would shock someone from excitement to, you know, something other than that. Now, Matthew skips a lot of detail that I would love to know about. We don't know exactly who it is that first told Joseph the news. We don't know precisely where he was. It could have been Mary who broke the news to him. It could have been somebody else. But the news, you would assume, just sucked the air right out of the room. Jarring. There's a good chance that Joseph's father was a carpenter, so maybe Joseph could have been in his dad's shop when he heard that news, maybe working on a project, and maybe upon hearing the news, he picked up a tool and, and smashed whatever it was that he was working on. I don't know. He knows, he knew, that if the story would get out, and it would get out, pregnancies are hard to hide. Everybody would know that, that they were only betrothed, and that would cause speculation as to who the father was. And most people would just assume that Joseph jumped the queue, so to speak. Skipped the waiting period. Or if Joseph denied responsibility, everybody would assume that Mary did something she shouldn't. Or maybe some might 
speculate that she was coerced sexually or assaulted or something like that, making her damaged goods. And again, I recognize that that um, kind of pokes at a little something for a lot of us. It's a patriarchal society with some very unique cultural dynamics to consider. But this is a time and a, and a place in history where sexual purity was taken very seriously. The value of staying pure before marriage was just assumed. Now, I'm limiting my teaching this weekend to the birth narrative in Matthew chapter 1. Next weekend, we'll uh, get into some of Luke's perspective on these events. And it's in Luke's gospel where we get a little bit more insight into Mary's state of mind. So I'll save the Luke's version for next week, but you know the story. The angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, who was betrothed to Joseph, saying, Blessed are you among women, the Lord is with you. Luke says that Mary was very troubled by the angel's greeting, but the angel said, don't worry, Mary, it's okay, don't be afraid, you found favor with God, you'll conceive, you'll give birth to a son, you'll call him Jesus, he'll be great, be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And Mary, of course, was in shock, saying, wait, what? No way, this cannot be. How, how can this be, because I've not been with any man? And so the angel said, trust me, Mary, it's... It's a God thing. The angel would go on to urge Mary to seek the counsel of her cousin Elizabeth. Steve was talking about that a few minutes ago. She was also pregnant despite being older and previously thought to be unable to conceive. And so the word is, with God, nothing is impossible. And with that, Luke sort of describes Mary transitioning from shock and confusion to acceptance. She said to the angel, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything that you said about me be true. And so angel visits Mary. Mary visits Elizabeth. Mary comes back after what Luke says. This is important. Three months. Three months has gone by. And what that means to you and me is that Mary has had three months to process everything. By the time Joseph finds out what's going on, Mary had been processing this information for several weeks. So when she comes back to Nazareth, she may have already had a slight baby bump, which would have been absolutely jarring to Joseph. He did not know what she knew. He didn't have his angelic encounter yet. He didn't have Luke's gospel to go, you know, look it up and say, what's going on? All he had was his own life experience, and life experience told him there's only one way for a woman to become pregnant. And so Joseph's excitement goes to shock and then to confusion. So that's the movement. Excitement, shock, confusion. And remember how Matthew described Joseph's desire to protect Mary a little bit. He didn't want to disgrace her publicly, and so he had it in his mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph had to have been dreaming about the wedding and the honeymoon and the family of his own. Shock gives way to confusion. Now what do I do about my pregnant fiance? And what he can and cannot do really comes down to three options. One, it is to expose her publicly. He could have exposed her publicly as an unfaithful woman. Their families had a contract, remember? They were pledged to each other. And in that betrothal period, no physical contact, period. But if that contract was broken, according to the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 22, Joseph and his family were well within their rights to, you know, subject her to public humiliation, even up to and including stoning. Though the Romans were in charge now, and they didn't really, you know, 
think too much of the Jewish laws. You know that from the crucifixion story. But that was option one. Uh, shame her publicly. Option two was private divorce, quiet divorce. All Joseph had to do, according to the law, was provide a written notice of divorce, signed by a couple of witnesses, and, you know, it's done. Option three was marry her anyway. According to Exodus 22, if a young couple was betrothed and the woman became pregnant, most people assumed that they, you know, again, got together early, if you know what I mean, but they could still get married. But Joseph, knowing he didn't have anything to do with said baby bump, he leaned toward option two, quiet divorce. Just try to make it go away. And yeah, I guess this is his way of showing some compassion, you know, quickly, privately. Nobody has to know, at least not immediately. They're going to know eventually. But by the time the story comes out, uh, it won't be his problem, his family's problem as much anymore. It'll be her and her family. But in verse 20, this is the part, I'm not going to put it on screen, just remember what we read. Matthew said about Joseph, as he considered this, I love that line, as he considered this. Yes, he's moved from excitement to shock to confusion, but he's still thinking. And you know how the story ends. I'll jump to the last movement. It's resolve. He ends up um, in resolve. But he's thinking, and the next movement is fear. Remember what the angel said. Even if you don't think you do, you do. The angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid, right, to take Mary as your wife. The child who's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It's a boy. And you're to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. Do not be afraid, Joseph. The only reason to tell somebody not to be afraid is because you sense they're afraid. So what's Joseph afraid of? Slander, gossip, rumors, the talk, maybe even what would happen to Mary after he divorces her. And so while he's, he's thinking about all of this, he fell asleep which happens sometimes when you're emotionally charged for quite a long period of time, heightened emotional state. Joseph was exhausted. He fell asleep, and while he is sleeping, an angel appears to him with a message that will change his life as well as the trajectory of the world. Joseph, Mary, the love of your life is going to give birth to a son, and you were to name him Emmanuel, which means God with us because this child is going to save the world. And somehow, the combination of Mary's news and the angel's message in the middle of a dream was enough to talk Joseph off the ledge of fear and produced in him that resolve that he needed. He settled things in his mind and concluded that it was, it was good. It was okay. What was happening to Mary was okay. It was all part of God's plan. This is verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. They got married. Joseph accepted his place in God's story and demonstrated a willingness to assist in God's salvation of the world in Jesus, knowing full well he would not be center stage, he never would be center stage, but he resolved in his mind to participate and to lean in with love from the side of the picture. All of this leads me to 
just this little point of application for week two of Advent. And here it is. Following God is not always easy. Following God is not always easy. Doing what God asks of you, doing what God asks of me, can be very difficult. Following Jesus is not a smooth or straight or easy path. Sometimes the right thing is the hard thing. And that's where I'd like to leave you on this second weekend of Advent. Sometimes, often even, the best decisions are the hardest decisions. Joseph could have broken the engagement quietly, and it might have been a lot easier for him. You know, it had to have been difficult to explain all of this to his friends and his family. And for sure, it was a gong show when he had to take his obviously pregnant um, you know, wife down to Bethlehem for the census, resulting in her giving birth at a time and in a place they would have never chosen. And it would get especially complicated when circumstances would force them to flee from their home country and seek refuge in Egypt. All that stuff is still to come, and Joseph doesn't even know it yet. But sometimes, the best decisions are the hardest. Joseph is a minor character in the story, but if it were not for him, we would not be celebrating Christmas like we are this year. So would you bow with me for a moment and pray with me as I close? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this season, for this experience today of just being able to sit quietly and bask in the beauty of great art and music and portrait and scripture. I thank you for the mothers and fathers of our faith that have gone before us, those we know personally and those we do not, and among those who've gone way before us. One we only know of is Joseph, the adoptive father of our Lord, who responded to you in obedience and allowed Jesus to be the driving force in his life and his family. In this season of Advent and beyond, when we're faced with tough decisions, may we respond with similar integrity and holiness and by the desire not to do just what is easy, but also what's right, even when it's difficult. Find us faithful. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here. Hope to see a lot of you tonight. God bless you. Have a good rest of the day.